Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Ed Miller, and welcome to another episode of I One Two, the podcast that spotlights important role players from your favorite professional teams and their journey to becoming a champion. This week, we're heading down to the Big Easy to focus on the New Orleans Saints. Once the laughingstock of the National Football League, things began to change when quarterback Drew Brees and coach Sean Payton came to town in 2006, during a time when the city needed a pick-me-up in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. But today's guest was also an important piece to the Saints' first ever championship, which came in a 31-17 win over the Indianapolis Colts in Super Bowl 44. He was a center and a member of special teams who was drafted 167th overall in 2004 out of Kansas State University and spent six years in the NFL with stints on Arizona, St. Louis, and New Orleans. You can currently catch him on Outside the Trenches, a Kansas City Chiefs-centric podcast that he co-hosts with former Chiefs team reporter BJ Kissel. So let's talk to today's guest, Nick Leckie. So you grew up in Dallas. Obviously, football is in like a whole other stratosphere there. Was your high school a hotbed for NFL talent, or were you kind of the exception to the rule? Um, actually, I wouldn't say a hotbed, but I mean, you know, playing football in the late '90s in Texas, it was it was big time. We had one or two guys like go pro before me. Uh, I know Jack Brewer was one, and then one of my good buddies is in my grade, Cody Spencer. He played six years in the NFL as well. So we kind of produced some talent. We produced some Division One talent, and we were four A out of out of five in uh, Texas. So that was really cool. And it was we had won state my uh, freshman and junior year. That's that's a nice way to get into things. Freshman year, you come out in states. <laughs> it is, and it was cool because you know we got moved up as freshmen uh, to be tackling dummies. So it was kind of a cool cool experience for us to kind of get to travel and kind of get to see how, how they do it. What's your game like in high school? Are you still an offensive lineman? Or are you kind of moving around? Yeah. So uh, every year as an offensive lineman, you know, usually it's most tackles from from co- high school are guards in college. And then most guards in college are like centers or guard. So you just kind of go from the outside in. And it's like everyone in college, uh, O-lineman, is, was, a, high, was a, a tackle at high school. And I played some D-tackle too. Winning those two state championships, what kind of impact does it have you early on? I mean, it's kind of the old story of the rookie comes in and all of a sudden he wins and he's like, oh, do we do this every year? (laughs) Yeah, well, it was cool to do as a freshman because you see the hard work and and you do kind of get that mentality of, man, this just seems easy. It just seems like natural, like, okay, you make playoffs and you win. And then our sophomore year, you know, we lost in the second round. So that's kind of a humbling. And then junior year, we go all the way. And then senior year, we get knocked out in the first because I think a lot of those young players who kind of grew up knowing about the freshman year, knowing about, you know, the, the second state title just expected it. So you kind of have that sort of complacency with, with some of those younger underclassmen supporting you. Does that linger with you a little bit, losing like that senior years? You're kind of like, all right, I'm moving on to college and starting to look at colleges and figure that out. And it doesn't really stick too much. It does. Well, for me too, I was getting heavily recruited because I was 6'3", 290 in high school. So I was getting really heavily recruited and I planned no recruiting trips in December thinking we'd make another late state run and we get knocked out in the first round. And K-State was like, hey, we saw that you got knocked out in the first round. You know, you're, you're not busy next weekend. Why don't you come up to K-State? And me thinking, not a chance in hell, buddy, but I'll come up there because I got an open spot and I just want to come come check out K-State. 
Well, you were actually also a state wrestling champion, were you not? Yes, I was. Yeah. And how did how did you kind of get into that? Because you didn't have any plans of wrestling, correct? No. Um, so the AP physics teacher, uh, Steve Wills, he was the wrestling coach, which I don't think that happens much. I think that's a rarity. Uh, so usually it's like, you know, he's the gym coach or something like that. He was an awesome guy. I loved him a lot. And he was like, hey, Nick, you've committed to K-State in December. And what a great way to stay in shape. And also our heavyweight's about to fail out. So why don't you come and just earn some points? And it's a great way to just stay in shape and get ready for for K-State. And lo and behold, it was my niche. You know, I loved it. Did you pursue it in college or did you kind of let it go at the high school level? No, K-State didn't have a wrestling team. I would have liked to. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it because it's the first time because I grew up playing soccer. I grew up playing football. And it was the first time I was able to be on my own. And everything, whether I won or lost, it was on me. So there was no one to to hold me back or uh, no one to blame. So I really enjoy that that kind of solo concept. And it was really cool because I was 20 and 0 and I had 18 pins. And then I pinned the guy in the finals in a minute 37. So that was really, really cool. Well, wrestling is one of those sports, most people get into it when they're real young and they kind of stick with it and grow with it. And here comes this dude in, in high school that's all of a sudden making noise. Like, how does that affect the guy that's been doing it since he's eight, nine, ten years old? I felt bad. I felt bad because I, I understood that, you know, I think it's different. You know, you got to think late 90s, that's a different, that's a different era. There's no flow wrestling, flow track. So you're not seeing everyone's highlight films. You're not seeing everyone's clips and you're kind of going off word of mouth before you go meet an opponent. And my coach was kind of like, when I qualified for state, he was like, you know, the guy you beat in regionals has been doing it since he was like five, probably. And I'm like, yeah, that's a crazy thought, you know, but sucks for them. <laughs> they, should, they, shouldn't have, uh, they shouldn't have done it solo or shouldn't have committed. <laughs> Before uh, K-State selected you, what other schools had interest in you? I mean, did you have a lot of schools coming out and recruiting you? Yeah, I did. So my number one was UCLA. And then I broke my, my finger, this middle one, or my, my right ring finger in their camp. And I'd, I sat out the last day because it was before my senior year. And then the coach kind of soured on me. And then Texas, Texas wanted, uh, I was, had a visit to Texas, to Duke and Colorado, I believe. You're talking about pretty big schools here. What was it that led you to Kent State as opposed to staying at kind of in your home state with Texas? I mean, that's a huge program. The thing with, with Texas was that, um, I I was like, Hey, I want to go. And they were honest with me and they said, you know, we're waiting on two other guys. I had a recruiting trip planned January 14th there. And one of the guys committed to Tennessee the same weekend I committed to K-State. And so after I committed, I came back and Texas was like, hey, now we want you. And I was like, well, you want these other guys. So I really, you know, I feel like I always be your second fiddle. And I think if I went to Texas, I think I just would have been another cog in a machine. You know, Texas has rich history. And I like the idea of being part of the base of K-State football. Uh, they got big time in 98 when they went Michael Bishop and went undefeated. And I mean, when I was in, I was a junior in high school and I was actually rooting for A&M. You know, when they beat <laughs> K-State in a Big 12 championship. And now I'm like, damn, that would have been nice if K-State would have won. So that was my thing, was just being a part of something new, right? Being at the ground, like being on the ground floor of Google. Does it kind of feel like getting thrown to the wolves? I mean, you, you kind of play right away at about the midpoint in the season. I mean, your first game starting, wasn't it a nationally televised game and it was kind of a big deal? It was, it was game day. Uh, I think number two versus number eight, uh, we hosted Oklahoma. And that was 2000 when they won the national championship. So yeah, my first start was as true freshman and game day was there and it was like 11 o'clock ABC. Uh, so that was big time. 
it was really big time. But I was too dumb to really fully grasp the the concept because it was I, I never I never had aspirations to play football. Uh, I wanted to quit my senior year of high school because my ultimate goal was to become a ski bum, and <laughs> and football kind of got in the way of that. Far cry from it. <laughs> Were those were those dudes like that much bigger in in college as compared to what you were seeing in high school? Consistently, yes. But uh, we played a lot of schools in Dallas uh, through during playoffs, and uh, so I went up against a lot of uh, premium talent, a, a lot of big individuals. But just consistently, when I got to K State, everyone was that guy from their high school, and so I would say just across the board, like I remember the first one-on-one pass pro rep I got as a freshman, my first in, in college camp was against Jerry Tungyai, and he was like 6'2", 330, just solid. <sighs> and I was like, this is going to be, this is going to be rough. <laughs> yeah, they're, those people are like grown. They're not like, they're, they're, they come from a factory. <laughs> <laughs> they do where they stamp them out. I'm like, they're like movie extras in Necessary Roughness or something like that. You're like, yeah, that's it. These guys, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you blocked for Darren Sproles at K State. Could you tell even back then what he was going to go on to do? Yeah, 2001. He was a true freshman, and he was doing stuff in practice where like, wow, like he. I think he was on a scout team for maybe one week, and then it was like, hey, come on up to uh, mm-hmm. our level, buddy. You know, you're going to be playing. And then for him. His moment was his second year in 02 versus USC. And it was a simple uh, off tackle play to the left. And he he juked and then spun three guys and made three guys from, from USC, which, you know, USC, they're getting four or five stars. They're getting, you know, NFL talent. And he juked those guys. And I was like, if you can do that to, to that caliber of talent, you've got to, you're going to make it in the NFL. No doubt. Well, and even, even back then, he was like the human turbo button. I mean, he just, he was a whole nother speed. And it was just like, you're talking about guys in Division One schools that are fast. And he just made them look like they were molasses. It, it did too. And and his stigma, which is silly, but he had the stigma where, okay, well, he, he goes to, he played football in Kansas, right? He went to Olathe North High School and, you know, they don't know football. They're not California. They're not Texas. They're not, they're not Pennsylvania. They're not Florida. So, you know, you kind of had that kind of chip on his shoulder and, you know, kind of got knocked because of that. So even in the NFL, like going from college to NFL was the same thing. It was like, he's too little. He's not going to make it. And just, you know, people always doubted him. And now it's, he's like the, 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 the standard where the, the chiefs drafted Clyde Edwards Hilaire and they're like, he's like yeah. Darren Sproles. So, you know, you go from being a guy who never thought they could make it to sort of changing minds from scouts and their old school expectations. Well, in the NFL too, everybody wants something that's new and a player like that, that was quick and can move to the outside. I mean, you, you get your Sproles, you get your, your Brian Westbrooks. There's a ton of those kind of smaller guys flinging to the outside and all of a sudden the game kind of developed around those type of players. Exactly. And, and it's cool to see the, those coaches who can take advantage of, of those schemes. And also thing with Sproles is that he did punt returns and kick returns. And anytime you can make an impact on special teams, I mean, that's like scoring two touchdowns. Well, he had his moment and you certainly got yours. Uh, can you talk about your draft day experience and kind of what memory might stick out to you? Just miserable. Um, <laughs> about a week before the draft, I was in San Diego hanging out with my buddy and my agent calls me and goes, what in the F is going on? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He was like, I just got your medical grades, man. You dropped from a third to fourth rounder to like a, to like a sixth or seventh rounder. And I'm like, oh no, what happened? And I guess uh, some team gave me some, some bad 
uh, medical grade. Like they downgraded my back, said I had disc touching. So going into draft day, I knew it was going to be a miserable experience. And my mom wanted to have a big party. Uh, and I told her, I'm like, mom, I'm not getting drafted on the first day anymore. She's like, I don't care. So to me, just watching all the centers get picked, all the guards get picked, and I was like, oh man, this is terrible. And I didn't get drafted until the sixth round, which at that time was the second day. I, I actually got a call from the Cardinals and they were like, you know, how would you like to wear a bird on your helmet? And I had already saw that the Cardinals had drafted another center in the fourth round. And I was like, is this the Eagles? And they were like, no, it's the Cardinals. I'm like, sweet. That sounds great to me. It's amazing, like the the impact that just a little thing like that, a medical grade. I mean, you you won the you were a finalist for the Remington Trophy the year before as one of the best centers in college football, and it's like something so simple as as a, a poor health grade. All of a sudden, boom, you're kind of wiped off the map. It does. I mean, it's the whole DK Metcalf thing. I wasn't as severe as him, but I mean, look, look at DK Metcalf, right? I mean, you look at it now in hindsight, it's, you know, cl- clear, but. At the time, I mean, he gets drafted, what, 64th pick? I mean, where you look at it now, he should have been top five, top 10. Yeah. But there's a lot of old school mentalities in the NFL, and we're starting to see it change with new coaching come in. You know, it's not just musical chairs anymore. And it's the same thing with medical evaluations where, you know, other teams, you know, maybe try and sabotage each other, and you just can't trust it. And even an Achilles injury is not a career ender anymore. You know, whereas yeah. you look in the 70s, maybe you got an ACL tear, you know, you're screwed. But I mean, nowadays you come back stronger than ever. Prior to that, though, had you gone to the combine and did you do that route or did you stay away from that and just kind of let your your game film dictate what teams saw? No, I went to the combine. Actually, um, I think I was in 04. So my combine, I went to a bad combine place where, where I dropped about 25 pounds. My agent called me who, and I told him, I was like, hey, man, I'm like 25 pounds lighter. He goes, what in the hell? <laughs> so it wasn't, I was kind of bummed about that. Actually, my strength decreased over the combine training, which is asinine now. <laughs> Uh, and I lost weight, lost 20 pounds. So I, I mismanaged my own combine performance and, and I paid a price for it. It made you realize from a young start that it, you're, a, you're a piece of meat. We got a, a sweater and a t-shirt and it said O-line 19 Lecky. And there was literally a, a, a part of the combine where they had us line up in a room and they was like, you know, a bunch of scouts in front of us looking at us and they made us take off our shirt. And, you know, we had to do like the, the wingspan thing. They measured wingspan. They measured like uh, hand size, you know, thumb to thumb to pinky. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they read it out loud and it was just, it's a bizarre concept, but it's like, I, it's like a cattle auction, really. You know, you're evaluating, you know, is this prime, this is choice, this is select. I was going to say the same thing, man. It's like taking the cow to slaughter. <laughs> That's what it is. It's like, well, not to slaughter yet. That's the end. It's before you purchase. It's the auction part, right? Like this is, this is good breeding stock. This is what you want in, in, your, in your, your pen or whatever. Well, speaking of slaughter, how, how was it getting acclimated to the speed and the strength of the NFL? Well, it was funny because I've always been a, um, I guess the term is try hard or I just, I went hard always. And in practice, the NFL with the Cardinals, I was going hard the first couple of days and my, my older vets were like, hey, Rook, chill, man. This is just, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to earn your payday right now. So just wait till training camp. So that was kind of weird to me to, to kind of pace it down. And with Snyder practices in college, man, we'd go for like three hours and I was spent where game day was a, was a easy and NFL, it was like, you know, you're getting limited reps. Like, you know, you're getting maybe eight, 12, you're getting maybe 24 to 30 reps in practice where in college, you know, we're getting 60 to 70 reps of, you know, one-on-one ones versus twos, 
reps. So it was, it was a different level. You know, it's more about preservation. You're almost not sure what to do with all the extra fuel in the tank because you're not repping as much. That's correct. And it sucked because like I wasn't able to eat as much. You know, I, I kind of started to get myself getting a little bit soft. And I was like, this kind of sucks. You know, you can't eat as much. You know, I can't order that that third entree anymore. I gotta gotta cut it down to just two entrees. <laughs> Life's tough decisions. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I tell everyone, man, I go, if I go, if you want to play football, uh, I t- I told my son, man, don't line up as a as a skinny dude, man. Put your hand in the dirt, dude, and you can eat whatever you want. And there's five spots on the O line, or there's, you know, five spots on the D line if you got a three, four. You know, so there, there's yeah, you just can't there. get winded. You, you know, you just have to be in some sort of shape. You can eat whatever That's you it. want, but you can't just you can't be like at the bowling alley, like just sitting there not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, you can't be chopping a, uh, a cigar and uh, pounding brews at the bowling alley. I mean, you could do that, but but you got to train hard. But yeah, absolutely. As long as you're in shape, man, uh, you're all good, man. Just, you know, I, I grew up playing soccer. And literally outgrew the sport, you know, just got heavy and had to play football. So I, I had that sort of base. I mean, everyone laughs that my seventh grade year, I ran cross country. <laughs> you were kind of all over the map, man. Yeah, I was, man. I really, I, I really, I love when people uh, say, you know, hey, you know, I've been dreaming about wearing an NFL jersey since I was five. And I was like, I wanted to literally be a snowboard bum <laughs> since I was five. Like, I just wanted to ski and, you know, chase fresh powder, uh, you know, be a bartender somewhere. And just, you know, you know, ski powder days. That, that was my, my dream. There's no day like the present. Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you spent time with Arizona and, and St. Louis, and uh, you started your fair share of games with them, and, and you got a lot of experience along the way. And then you decided to sign a one-year deal with New Orleans as a UFA. What was it for you that drew you to that city? Because it was a city that was, it was struggling. I mean, you're, you're four or five years removed from Katrina. What was it for you that led you to sign with them? So uh, they were the team that wanted to offer me some guarantees and some signing bonus and some workout bonuses. And uh, I just liked the fact that the center they had was uh, Jonathan Goodwin. And he was, we were kind of in the same boat where kind of like some mid-level vets. And I thought I had a chance to compete for the starting job. Uh, Come to find out I was the backup. And I I accepted that role uh, right away after it was clear that, hey, you know, Goody's going to be our center and you need to learn center and guard. For you, was that a little bit of a of a better fit than your previous stops? Was it nice to know, hey, I'm the backup. If they need me and they call on me, I'm there. But I don't have to worry about flip-flopping back and forth, starting, not starting. You kind of knew your role. Yeah, so I was always a... Uh uh, a reluctant, I guess, reluctant starter. I don't know if that's the right term, but it always felt like I was a little offense alignment at 6'3", 305. I was always the, like the little guy. Like my game was was speed. My game was uh, thought process and uh, little veteran moves. Like I'd, I'd hold a guy inside pad. Uh, I'd yank someone down uh, if I felt them trying to bull rush me. So every time I, I got to be the starter, it was because I had earned it. So it was like, you know, midway through the season or, you know, during camp one year. So I always felt left for dead on the on the cut pile every year, except my last year when it was the final one. Is that almost a little bit of more gratifying to be coming as the underdog and be like, yeah, I got this. I earned it. Yeah, it, it is. Because like I said, every year, I literally had to start from the bottom. Like every year was a Drake song. And it was like, <laughs> man, I was just constantly like just fighting, not for even a starting spot, just fighting for existence where like the coaches were, were always being like, Oh, you're not that big. But then I'd show them. And they, I think that I was always doubted. So that was always my motivation. So, and I think the thing with the NFL is you can never get complacent because my rookie year, they cut uh, a 12 year vet for no reason the day before camp. 
Well, the city of New Orleans was kind of a character in, in the Super Bowl, just with the story of the background. Did you hear much of those Katrina stories? And was that something that was still fresh in everybody's mind and still something that you had to kind of learn and, and discover during your time there? There was literally, uh, you could see watermarks in some parts of New Orleans still where Katrina was. And there were still some restaurants that were closed since 05. And there was even a few menu items that weren't there. Like, oh, we haven't had that since the storm. And you always heard, you know, this was from the storm, the storm. And, and, you know, that was a Katrina reference. And guys who played on the Saints in 05, when they had to go to San Antonio and they had to go all these different places, they lived uh, across the lake in Mandeville. So they had to drive like 45 minutes into practice each morning because of they remember the storm. And so it was a big deal, man. They, they would always tell, like Jamar Nesbitt would always tell stories about Katrina, what happened and what a cluster it was. And, you know, didn't even think that the, the town was going to have, um, have a team anymore. And so that definitely made winning uh, all that much more important to all of us too, because I mean, the city, you could, you could feel the city behind us. It was, I'd say we were 13 and 0 and didn't even realize it. I mean, just, but the city was rabid for us. You know, they, they, they kept us going. Uh, we were at a dinner and one of the fans, like these fans bought three of us O'Lyman and they, they played us a song. It was called Party in the MIA. And it was the Miley Cyrus, you know, sort of remix, but it was <laughs> us going to the Super Bowl in, in Miami. And this was in December. We're like, wow, these guys believed before we did. That was really cool. Does that make you want to work a little harder? I mean, if a lot of players, if they go to a city that hasn't won it in forever, I mean, you look at the Chicago Cubs, it makes them want to try a little harder. So does that make you want to try a little bit harder, knowing that a city like that embraces you and could really use a pick-me-up at the time? It gives you extra motivation because sometimes, you know, you go through games and you're not, you're not motivated as much. So maybe you're playing a Sunday noon game uh, or one o'clock and you're not motivated. You're like, okay, this is whatever. But then knowing that these fans are behind you, was I thought that was really cool. And it's just that that little extra edge. And sometimes that can be a real difference maker. Well, you only spent one year with the Saints and it was kind of ups and downs for you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the range of emotions? You, you get waived three days later, they re-sign you. What is, what's going through your mind throughout the entire month of September when all that happened? So what happened was um, Lance Moore, a wide receiver, was the third string quarterback. So he's like the emergency quarterback. He pulled his hamstring. And they had to elevate Chase Daniel from practice squad to active roster. So to do that, they had to waive me. So that was a weird game versus Buffalo where I traveled with the team, but I was cut. So they cut me Saturday, promoted Chase, and then let me travel with the team just to stay involved. So I had to watch that game from the press box uh, in Buffalo. So it was really weird because they still wanted to say, hey, we're going to sign you back. Uh, it's just a temporary move because Lance is, uh, you know, he's hurt. He's not going to play. We need Chase just in case Brunel gets hurt after Drew Brees. So like, okay, that's pretty cool. And then I was um, inactive the first eight games because, you know, they like someone else at the backup center. And I tell you what, though, there's no better feeling than being inactive. <laughs> I, um, I would see on Wednesday morning that I wasn't on the field goal team. And that was my first indicator. I'm like, I'm inactive this week. And it was kind of like, it was great and, and bad at the same time because I could go from inactive, travel with the team, and then, you know, Goody gets like food poisoning the night before the game. And Sunday, it's like I go from inactive to starter. So it was like a bizarre, bizarro world. Uh, but but it, was, it was stressful, but I enjoyed that. 
So you like the third entree, and you like being inactive. We're 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 breaking down barriers here. I did no, I did, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> front and lie to you and say, oh, no. well, like obviously I wish I was starting for sure. Don't get it twisted, but at the same time, just to know that it's like cool. I don't have to do jack squat. Like this is great. This is fantastic. I'm gonna prepare <laughs> like I'm the starter, and then I'm gonna eat a hot dog at halftime and wear street clothes during a game and still get you know the same the same payment. You're still hanging with the team, so it's kind of like you're on that sideline, kind of like I'm not playing with you, but. I'm still here. I'm still back, and yeah, I'm still rooting for you. Absolutely, and and you know, when I went back for our 10 year reunion, I found myself. You know, I was close with the O linemen. You know, close with offense guys, but I felt myself really, really tight with the defense alignment because I was I was the scout team center. You know, it was the first time in my life I was scout team center, and and I always did my my part Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to get the defense ready. So I, I was like, okay, we're we're playing the Cowboys. They had Andre Giroud. I watched his stance. I knew how he played, and I tried to emulate that. Same thing if we played the Panthers, or if you know we played you know Chicago or, or whoever. I would emulate that center, and I would play how they played. So I did my part Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and uh, being a vet. I was like, okay, I know how to do this where I'm not going to mash anybody, but I'm going to go really hard and I'm going to get them right. That's an interesting outlook because you're, you're, you're sitting in the stands on Sunday, but you're just as important as every other guy on the team when it comes Monday through Friday. And your role's just as important as Drew Brees and, and anybody else on the team. Yeah, it is. And that was just the one game. The other games, I'm on the sidelines, right? So I'm just, I'm there chilling and everything like that. But yeah, I, I took my my role seriously and I led that that scout team O-line, uh, helped out the the younger players. You know, they'd get down, I'd coach them up or I'd say, hey man, here's how we do this. You know, listen to my calls. I, I, I've got you, you know, take care of you. So I was kind of like the, the like the captain of the scout team. Well, I mentioned Drew Brees. Early in your career, you blocked for a Hall of Famer, Kurt Warner. And this time around, you blocked for another future Hall of Famer. Did the two have many similarities and differences? Can you talk about kind of being in front of both of those quarterbacks? Professionalism. You know, just really, really took it seriously. I thought I was a professional and Kurt and Drew just took it to a whole nother level with the amount of film study, uh, preparation back then too. I feel, I feel like I played in the eighties now, but, uh, nutrition was a big deal, but not as big a deal as it is now. And it was crazy to see how dedicated these guys were to their whole body and just getting rehab and and just getting recovery. And when you're young, well, yeah, think about as a six year vet, I was 27 years old. So relatively young, right? And think about, you know, when you're 27, right? You, You can eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, stay up late, all that stuff. And these guys played for so long because they took care of their body and just, they were just really, really professionals and just how they approached the game, uh, how they studied, how they analyzed and broke it down and, and thought through it. It's kind of where I'm at now when I watch football and thinking about it in depth and in overall schemes, not just farming your own field is where they were at when they were played. Drew Brees had those crazy huddles in the beginning of the game, those pregame huddles that everybody, he'd go bananas and everybody would start screaming and watching it on a 40 inch flat screen was enough to run through a wall, but I'm sure it didn't, didn't do it justice being there in person. What were some of his pregame antics like for you? Drew is so genuine and you just know he's a competitor. I mean, we did a, we did a a celebrity softball tournament versus I think this military all-star team. And this dude was like, batting from both sides of the plate, hitting home runs and, and going ultra competitive. You know, he would work hard in the weight room. Every little thing he did, like we went fishing one time, bow hunt fishing, and he's trying to catch the most amount of fish. So the guy's just a, an ultra competitor. And, and I really bought into that because I, I played with some quarterbacks who were lazy and, you know, they would chill in the weight room and they really weren't doing their thing. And just him saying that, it came from a genuine spot. 
it wasn't it wasn't inauthentic like a lot of guys were if they tried to give us a raw our speech and we're like dude i don't i don't trust you like please stop talking I'm, i respect you because you're the quarterback <laughs> but with drew it was legit it came from the heart and and it was awesome and that's the mindset, and that's why some of those players get to where they're at. There's a reason he's that good and a reason he can play into his 40s. And the health and the nutrition and the weight room is part of it, but you got to be an absolute gamer. It, you do, and you got to have ice-cold blood. But I think with him, it was cool because we used to have these dinners on Thursday night, O-Line and Drew and Mark Brunel. And it, Drew would literally come at like 7 o'clock. He'd be, we'd be there since like 6 or 6.30 drinking, and he'd show up at like 7 uh, we'd have his food ready. He'd hang out with us for an hour or two and he would go back to watching more film. And it was just like that sort of level of dedication. It was just unreal, un- unmatched. Does that make you guys want to work harder? I mean, does that make everybody around him want to work harder? It, it it does. It does. There's a reason like when Peyton Manning went to the Broncos and then left the Broncos that they got worse because that kind of person elevates talent and it makes everybody say, okay, listen, you can't just leave at four o'clock anymore. You know, you got to watch some extra film. You got to leave at five o'clock. You got to get in those extra film reps because the, you know, the quarterback is, and that kind of sets the tone for everyone else offensively and defensively that you have to elevate your game. You know, there's a reason why, you know, Mahomes has elevated the, the Chiefs and guys like Sammy Watkins are literally taking pay cuts to stay there because you got a guy who's a, who's a brilliant talent and a great leader and a hard worker all at the same time. Yeah, it's the perfect culmination. It is. It really is. And if, you know, if you're a defense offense guy, you don't want to sign where, where the quarterback is, you know, not trustworthy and, you know, can't execute a game plan. Coaching has a lot to do with that as well. But yeah, it just, that sets the tone. So the Saints rattle off 13 wins to start the season, season, including they beat the reigning Super Bowl champs, the the Giants. And then you kind of, you rattle off a few more, you beat Tom Brady and the Patriots, which they were in a little bit of a down point at that time, but still it's Tom Brady and the Patriots. When does it kind of hit you that, okay, this could be real. What What's going on here? This is, this seems like it's something special. So I'd never, I'd never experienced playoff football. I'd played five seasons and all five seasons. It was like in December, I knew that we could plan a vacation at the at the end of the last game. This time, it was just a lot of fun. During the week, Sean Payton, he made it fun just because he was serious. But at the same time, you know, you're, 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 you're having a good time, you know, winning, winning smooths everything, of course, right? We're winning. So everything's good when you win, right? There, nothing can go bad. But even when we lost those last two games, you know, kind of backdoor qualified for home field advantage in the last seven week, 17 was a, was a, a play for nothing game that it was just fun. And once we got that week off, like Sean gave us a week off for our bye week and playoffs. And we were able just, I, we went back to Phoenix where we had had our house, my wife and I, and just got away. And coming back, he's like, go away, come back, we're, and we're gonna do this thing. And so he just initiated that confidence. So that that first game that we played versus the Cardinals, it, we just knew it, man. You just had a feeling. And the town was behind us. Was Peyton as intense as he he kind of portrays himself on TV? I mean, I know he has that story about the juicy fruit where he's losing his mind in the Super Bowl because he's not getting the right gum. Is he that intense all the time? Is that guy always running at 100? He is. He is, man. Even in walkthroughs, it was really amazing because him and Drew were kind of getting this sort of like symbiotic relationship where they're kind of feeling each other. And it's like, do we need to be here? Because you guys are just designing all these plays and doing all these pass routes. And so, yeah, he's super intense. You know, I think he got his, you know, he cut his teeth. They, they used to call him in, in Dallas, uh, Little Tuna, right? Because he was a Bill Parcell. I believe that Bill Parcells was Big Tuna, I think. And yep. um, so he was, he, he was little tuna. And I think he got that intensity from Parcells, but he got that sort of, 
you know, player friendly coach because, you know, you know, Sean, he, he enjoys, he enjoys good drink and good food. And so that's relatable, you know, and he could balance that, that, Hey, he could joke with you. He loved busting balls. Uh, he loved cracking <laughs> jokes and, and you appreciate that as a player. Cause like, man, this guy is just honest. He's genuine. Your team was the first one to lose three at the end of the year and then win the Super Bowl. You mentioned limping into the playoffs, but is that something where it's like, we need to get it together or we're done? Or is it kind of, is the, the Superdome deflated at that point? What What's going through that team's head at that moment? So we lost to Dallas at home on a Saturday night. And that was that was a difficult one. And then we lost to Tampa at home because our kicker missed a field goal. If anything, I think that makes you rethink that you're not invincible. Like it's good. I think I think what happened with the Colts cuz I believe they had lost their last game and I, my my good buddy Ryan Lilja played for them left guard and uh, he just they had too much confidence. And I think with us is that we got, you know, we got all this great success, 113 and then lost lost last 3. I think that knocked us down a couple pegs and it brought us back to reality like, "Hey man, you can't just roll your helmet on the field." and expect a W. So if anything, it was like the perfect medicine uh, to kind of deflate that sort of bubble and hysteria that was going around the 504 at the time. I was going to say, were people like jumping off of the top of the Superdome fans, like going bananas because oh, of yeah. the fact they lost three in a row and you start 13, you lose three in a row and it's worldwide panic. I, I've never watched Sports Center. Twitter was just barely in its infancy in 09. So I really didn't get a pulse of the city at that point. So I couldn't tell you what the fans were, but I knew that they were ready once playoff came. And once we had um, the national anthem versus the Cardinals was done with a, um, a trumpet and it was all instrumental. I, I brought like tears to my eyes and I was like, this is it. Like, it's a wrap. Like, we got this. The motto for that game was bring the wood. It was kind of the catchphrase that stuck on. I remember Reggie Bush running out with, with a baseball bat. Do you remember or do you know how all that kind of started, where that where that culminated? Hell yeah. Um, I think it, we played the Jets. You know, we, we played the Jets and uh, they were really good that year. I think they lost to the Colts in the AFC championship game. I think someone said, you know, we got to bring the wood this game. And it just kind of stuck. They issued us or they gave us these baseball bats. I still have them all. And it was like a, a white and green baseball bat and so bring the wood jets. And then once playoffs rolled around, it was like, you know, you gotta uh you gotta find a motto. You gotta have something kind of stick to. And ours were were like bring the wood, uh, smell greatness and something else. So they're all inscribed in the Super Bowl ring. And uh yeah, so the, but yeah, that was funny that Reggie run out with that thing. But it was cool, man. It was like one thing, like that's a that's a defensive slogan. Right, bring the wood, but we kind of adapted on offense because you know we had a trio of, of great running back running backs, Pierre Thomas, Reggie Bush, Lionel Hamilton, and those guys brought it. And those guys brought it every play. Did it seem as though you were on a trajectory to play the Vikings? It was clear to almost everybody that the Vikings were the best or the second best in this case team in the in the NFC. So did it just seem like it was on a collision course that that's who you'd wind up playing in the playoffs? It did. It did. And you know, Carolina beat them week 16 to put us on Mon Sunday or Monday night. I remember watching it from my apartment and it, it seemed inevitable. You know, Brett Favre, you know, was the king and uh, yeah, he, he was going to play Drew Brees in, in the Superdome it felt definitely it had an air of inevitability. Were you on the field when Hartley kicked that field goal in overtime or were you watching from the sidelines? No, so I was I was inactive my, the first eight games and then week nine on, 
uh, I was active. So I was the backup, like the actual backup where that sucked even more because usually you're so nervous. But if you're the starter, once you get that first hit, it's all good. All your nerves are gone. You're just playing football and it's, it's glorious. But as the backup, you don't get that first hit. So I'm nervous mm. the whole game. And we had our two guards in center that I had to back up. And these guys, you know, they get, they're injured throughout the season and they were banged up and they used to get up so damn slow. And I'm like, is he hurt? Do I got to get warmed up? And I'm like, one, two, three, are, are they up? Okay, good. <laughs> so yeah, it was front. That was nerve wracking. But yeah, I was the right tight end. And I was so thankful because the, 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 for that Vikings kick, it was on the right hash mark, which means they're going to overload the left side, right? Cause that's the side that's close to the, um, the, 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 the field goal. So I was like, I had nobody to block. It was great. <laughs> Is that play burned in your memory? Because, uh, besides the Super Bowl, that's probably the biggest play in Saints history. For me personally, it was the, the kick. I was also on the kick return team. And it was our kick return to start out the, the the overtime period where I got two blocks. I was able to block my guy and then chip up for another guy. And we were able to start the ball like our at the 40 or 50 on the kick return. So that was a big boost. And then, you know, and then for once we got to there, I'm like, we're going to kick this field goal. As far as the Superdome goes, that place erupted right after that kick. I mean, it, I'm sure it was probably as loud as you've ever heard it. What was it like for you to play as a as a visitor and as for the home team at the Superdome? So as a visitor, uh, my first time to play in the Superdome was 07. And I was with the Rams at the time. And, and at the time, they're still in St. Louis. And they, we played at the Jones Dome. And it was a, it was the same. It was a dome. We go to the Superdome and they they let you in from like the one of the entrances and you had to walk across the field of the locker room. And once you walk in, you're like, oh my God, this place is massive. You could fit three of our stadiums into the Superdome because it's just cavernous, just ginormous. I mean, just unreal. So overwhelming. We ended up, well, that was our first win of that year in 07 St. Louis. And then playing there, and, you know, we were great. So the fans were hyped. I mean, it was like Halloween every Sunday. During that Vikings game, I saw that the O-linemen had like these custom earpieces that they're wearing and it got so damn loud. It <laughs> was probably, honestly, and I used to, used to be, I was in NFC West for five years, you know, played in Seattle. No contest, Superdome was louder. Was it the loudest stadium that you played in? hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yes. I mean, I couldn't hear myself think on the sidelines when the Vikings had the ball. It was unreal. Which is weird because you always hear about um, Arrowhead and the and the decibels, and but I guess something about that sound indoors, it's got nowhere to go. It's. I mean, listen, I live in Kansas City now. Um, you know, I cover the Chiefs on a, a podcast, and I've been to games at Arrowhead, and it's loud. It is really, really loud. But man, I mean, indoor. I mean, this where's the sound going to go? You know, it's going to bounce off the off the roof. Well, New Orleans is a party town. They never experienced a playoff run like that before. I mean, this is a team that was 20 years earlier, 25 years earlier. They they dropped the S from their name. They were the Aints. I know you didn't watch and, and social media wasn't around. You didn't watch SportsCenter. But was could you feel the buzz around the city, just just around the whole area of what you guys were doing as you as you wiped off the, the Vikings and kind of were making your way to the Super Bowl? Hell yes, absolutely, man. I remember going to places as, as, as like, you know, we had our O-line dinners on Thursday nights, right? And the, the difference between our O-line dinner week four versus week 15 was like, like there was like a crowd of people as we left and we literally had to like bodyguard style, get Drew out of there. Because people were going nuts. Once they found out like a bunch of big dudes and you see Drew Brees, like that's the Saints in the O-line. 
And so they would just swarm. So yeah, you absolutely felt that energy. And it was it was cool because New Orleans is a big little city. They really took care of us like family, you know, treated us like family. And just, I mean, what a great city. What a, what a fantastic city to show love to, to their football team. You guys were almost like celebrities at that point, you know, well, body, bodyguards and celebrities. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you know, you play O-line, you know, you're not a celebrity, man. And, and you're okay with that because you can sort of straddle both worlds of, you can go to the grocery store and not get accosted, uh, kind of do your thing. People are like, oh, that's just a big dude. And then where, but if, you know, if you're like a, a celebrity, if you're like a skinny guy, you know, you, you can't maintain normal life anymore. There was a big thing made about after the Super Bowl of ambush, and this was this was something people didn't know about. But ambush was the big thing, the code name for stealing uh, possession, essentially on an onside kick. Uh, well, he wanted to do one on punt return and switch it to do an onside kick. How how much did you guys practice that leading up to the game? So I wasn't on the kickoff team, but. I remember, so you know, you have the two weeks before the Super Bowl, and it was like Wednesday or Thursday of our first time being, you know, you know, getting ready for the Super Bowl. The first week we we're still in New Orleans, and Sean was like, I don't know when, I don't know where, but we are gonna do an onside kick. We are gonna we're gonna do an onside kick. And then that was like the last I'd heard about it. And then going into the second half, you know, we had we we were kicking it off. And, you know, Dwight Freeney was just, man, he was having a really good day versus Jermon Bushrod. And, you know, Bushrod, fantastic tackle, but he was young. It was like his first first year starting. He was on the sidelines getting taped because, you know, he figured, okay, you know, kick it to Peyton. They're going to take a four or five minute drive. He's going to be able to get taped. And all of a sudden, you know, we, we, we're, we're kind of down at the time and you get this, this sort of game breaker, ballsy. I mean, you can talk about gambler. I mean, that's, <laughs> that was crazy. Like it'll, it'll, you'll never happen. I mean, you imagine a guy gambling like that in a Super Bowl. Does that like, light a fire under your ass though? Because it's gotta be yeah. like, if, if the coach is doing that, we're all in, we're not messing around in this. We, we want this game and we want it more than they do. Absolutely. And, and it sets the tone for you where it's like, man, listen, like I trust you guys where I'm gonna go for this. Don't make me look like an ass, you know? And if, if we don't get this defense, do, do your thing. But yeah, I mean, for a coach to, to call that, like, imagine, like, I always tell people this, like I watch football with friends and I'm like, okay, listen, this is playoff football. Imagine calling an onside kick right now. Would you do it? And they're like, nope. So I, I always tell people to try that. Think about it. You know, it's, it was ballsy. It was a risk, but it did. And it, it literally changed the whole perception of the game. It changed, it, it tilted the game in our favor. It did. And it was downhill after that. And it further proved how good of a coach Sean Payton is and how he he will take risks even at inopportune times when other coaches are scared and sitting on their hands and and that's why he's kind of in the position he is. Exactly. And I think a lot of that too is knowing your players, having a, a pulse on your team, uh, knowing personalities, uh, you know, intimately and, you know, knowing, you okay, we're a veteran team. We can recover from this if we don't get it. But guess what? I'm going for it. And nobody knew, by the way, there was no talk about it. Like, there's no buzz. Like, oh, we're going to run the onside kick now. It was like, you know, we go out there, we're just watching, we're like, what the hell? Like, oh, we did it. Like, oh, we got it. Like, oh, it was crazy. <laughs> Is something like that kind of not tough, but it, can it be challenging to keep that in the locker room and keep it to yourselves? Well, it's got to be one of those things. So, you know, like the kickoff team huddles with the special teams coach. And I think Sean Payton came over there and was like, hey, ambush. And then everyone's like, really? Okay, <laughs> let's go. Let's let's go do that. But yeah, no, it really was like if you weren't on that kickoff team, you did not know you did not know it was about to happen. It was like like G seven classification. <laughs> 
So give me give me your best memory of each game leading up to and including the Super Bowl. We'll start with the uh, divisional against the Cardinals. Uh, I'd say trumpet player doing the uh, national anthem was just unreal. And then them scoring like a 70-yard run, like the first play, and thinking, oh, damn. <laughs> um, and then and then obviously just beating them, beating them like crazy. I remember Kurt Warner getting, you know, they had to change the rules for you can't hit quarterbacks because uh, Bobby McRae leveled Kurt Warner on an interception uh, on that one. The next game was the NFC Championship against Minnesota. Definitely the kick at the end in overtime. That was, yeah, that was something else. And then, you know, honestly, to go back before that, the Washington game, we played out Washington where we clinched the NFC West. I believe it was Meacham where Drew threw a pick. Like the guy was running, I forgot who it was, who was running with the ball for Washington, uh, had the interception, was trying to return it back. And Meacham, mm-hmm. you know, grabbed him and stripped him. And it was like 20 seconds left to go in the first half. Stripped him and ran it back for a touchdown. And that was like, this is magical. And then the Super Bowl. Definitely the Tracy Porter pick six. That was that was when when Tracy Porter, I remember I was jump hugging um Goody, the center, uh, when he when Tracy Porter got that. Cause I mean, Tracy Porter, he that was a guy who studied his his plays. He jumped that route, he got that pick, and he returned it all the way. And that's when you were like, I think this is about to happen. I mean, you're still two possessions up on Peyton Manning, 14 points up. That's not safe, you know, no matter how much time you have, you know, little, little time was left. Were you running down the sideline with Porter, much like Sean Payton was? Were, were, you, were you were you like following him the whole way to the end zone? No, I'm a fat cat. I, told, I was I was jump hugging the other center like it were like two like giddy school children, like literally like we were literally hugging and jumping together. Like oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, it was crazy. And then like we're doing so much, he goes, "You got to go field goal." I'm like, "Shoot, thank you." Yeah. So at that, yeah, at that point, you're so excited where it's like you almost have to make sure I still have a job to do. I, exactly. I, I'm not a spectator. I got to go in there and exactly. I got to get this done. I got to do my part. Exactly. I do. <laughs> so, yeah, that was one of those things where I was like, okay, yeah. But but that's one of those plays where you like, where you got wonder, like, why are guys missing? What are they doing? That's what happens because you're on the sideline <laughs> unfocused. Can you walk me through those final, final seconds taking off the clock and what's going through your mind as all of a sudden you become Super Bowl champion? Just unreal. Like it's something that was always on, you know, a goal, but it was so out of reach first five years. And then my sixth year to have that come together. And then, you know, we're taking a knee. I'm watching it from the sidelines. I had all my buddies from high school. I played against, you know, the left guard was my, my, my best friend in college, my left guard in college with the Colts. Um, I had, you know, family on my family in the stands and it was just crazy. It was just like, like, just this, like. Like no matter what happens, like this, this is it, man. This is, you know, you won a championship. You'll, you'll forever be etched on this team, immortalized, you know, be, you know, referenced with your name. Um, it could all end tomorrow and you got that. So that was really cool. And uh, you realize how lucky, you know, it's, it takes luck. It takes, you know, people got to be injured or not injured at the right times and got to have a certain, you know, way of doing it. And it was just cool, man. It was, you know, football could end tomorrow because of injury or, or, you know, getting cut. But you'll always be a Super Bowl champion. You always have that. Do you think it means a little bit more to you? It was the only Super Bowl that you won. But do you think it means more winning it for a city like that and and the way you guys did coming off of Katrina and and they'd never won as opposed to being just another notch in like the Patriots belt? Does that make any sense? It, no, it, it totally does because when I was not with the Saints or not in Super Bowl, you could you know each O lineman or each player could buy Super Bowl tickets, and you always wanted 
the the team that hadn't been there before to make it to the Super Bowl because you know that made the the resell the resell higher. Yeah, and and it, it always I think your first one uh, for most of anything is is special. And you always remember it the most. And and as far as getting over the hump of Katrina, I never realized how big of an impact that sports had in people's lives until that. Because I felt like it did help the city of New Orleans get put on the map just from a national presence of a sports team. And to win a Super Bowl, I, I, I do feel people got closure from Katrina, you know, because they had had the time gave them something else to focus on. And it, it really reunited a, a whole city. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of class divide in New Orleans. And I felt like that everyone on Sunday is a Saints fan. You know, everyone is is together then. And so I thought that was, that was really cool to bring together a city and to help them get over that hump that was uh, Katrina. Who from the team did you hang out with on the field at, during the celebrations and everything going on? So uh, the celebrations, you're allowed two family members, and I had my wife and my sister, and then I hung out with um, Chris Reese. He was the guy who recovered the uh, the fumble. For some reason, you know, at different teams, you just get along with different people. And I remember, you know, we got pictures with James Carville, you know, the raging Cajun, the ball dude. <laughs> yep. And uh, it was just crazy old school. to see. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> old school. Um, and then I remember um, just, uh, I did the confetti angel. That was the one time where I allowed myself to act like an ass because I'm like, I could, I'll never be here again, you know? Mm-hmm. So I better, I'm going to act like a butthead. And I did the confetti angel and all that stuff. And just, I stole a football, you know, from, from our quick <laughs> guy. And uh, so I've got a Super Bowl football, a game, game use Super Bowl football. Is stealing a football from the equipment guy tough to do? I actually bribed him. I was <laughs> like, hey, can I get a football and I'll give you some money? And because I always every every game I would steal the the shorts, but I'd I'd give them money uh, to steal those shorts because <laughs> they had these these weird mesh material. It was really really good, comfortable. They're my sleep <laughs> shorts still. <laughs> With so many other important contributors, uh, from the owner to Drew Brees and and everybody, at what point did you grab the Vince Lombardi and kind of hold it? And and what was that like? So it took us like three hours because uh, I, I am I am still to this day jealous that freaking baseball players celebrate like a divisional playoff win with like champagne celebrations. <laughs> and in the locker room was so anticlimactic. I think people do it now. Like I think, I think football does it now, but- A lot of dancing. Yeah. But in our locker room, there was no champagne bottles because you didn't know if you're going to win it beforehand. Um, there's no champagne balls. No, it's like you celebrate in the field with your family and you come in and it's just like, wow. And it was like, yeah, it wasn't really celebrated. So I was disappointed that we really didn't get to do that uh, champagne shower that, that you get to see everyone else do, every other sport do. It's funny because I talked to Ken Dilger on a previous podcast and he won it with the with the Buccaneers back in, in 02. I asked him about the locker room and he, he was kind of like, no, everybody just kind of showered, got on the bus. We had the trophy on the bus and then we made our way to the plane and because you're right, in baseball, they'll be in there for hours just <laughs> spraying and shoot. Like, yeah. and, But for, for football, it's all done on the field, and then it's kind of back, it back to business. It is. And then the first time I touched the bus or the, uh, the, the Lombardi was Sean brought it on the bus. And by the way, that was like Sean's baby for like a month. Mm-hmm. And, but but he, he, he let us touch it. And it's funny, this is an anachronistic statement, but uh, I had uh, Mark Brunel take a picture with my Blackberry <laughs> and the Super Bowl. So that was the first time I got to kiss the trophy and, and hold it 
was on the bus. Well, Bourbon Street can be uh, can be pretty insane on a random Thursday night. So, what's it like for a Super Bowl winning team during a parade? We, you know, we hung out in Miami that night. We had they had told us like, "Listen, win or lose, we're gonna have a party for you guys at the Intercontinental that night." So, we had a great party. A lot of celebrities were there. One celebrity, country singer, was drunk off his ass, couldn't finish songs, and we were just <laughs> loving it. It was fantastic. He looked like Tom Brady leaving the uh, the, the parade float. Oh, this thing, you know? <laughs> he didn't he didn't throw the Lombardi though, did he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, wasn't that cool? So we had that party. It was fun. And then we fly back and there's like, hey, there's going to be a parade for us. And in a town known for parades, and it was like the start of Mardi Gras, it was like the most gigantic celebration ever. Some of the pics from there, it was like 10 people deep for like five hours on a parade. Like there were no dead spots. The quarter was off the charts. Uh, the whole city was off the charts. I was so, so gas that I, I went home. I didn't go out that night, but guys said it was insane. Absolutely insane. Did you pal around during the parade with the same guys that you celebrated with after the game? So they had us on like all these floats and it was actually kind of cool because um, Drew asked for the O-lineman to be on his float. And so the wide receivers were running back to their own. We were on Drew's float. So one of the cool moments was before the parade started, we had, you know, no one ever, you know, how many guys had done it before. I actually, and this is classic New Orleans, I bribed <laughs> A lot of bribery going on yeah. in my life, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, when in Rome, right? You, I actually, you actually, you I, yeah, I asked a, a state trooper on a motorcycle. I'm like, hey, buddy, we don't have any alcohol. Can you go buy us like this, this, and this? And he goes, absolutely. And so <laughs> full state trooper in his gear, in a motorcycle, sirens blasting, got us, went to a liquor store, bought us a bunch of alcohol and champagne and brought it back to us. I mean, the most New Orleans thing ever. Uh, yeah, but you this, might be the only person in New Orleans history that can say they asked a cop to get him booze and the cop <laughs> did it. Exactly. And it, it, fully, it was awesome, but it was like, but that was the, the like the enthusiasm and the flair of the city at the time was that. And so, so he brought us that, you know, we did some drinks and it was funny because initially in the float, we were like ducking underneath to like take a swig. And then about an hour or two in it, we're like, are we kidding me? This is, this is, we just won the Super Bowl. Do whatever you want. And so we're just up on a thing drinking and it was, oh, it was awesome. It's like a free pass. I mean, one yeah. day you get a free pass. And and how we exercised our um, our authority was that we, uh, we stopped, like literally stopped the parade, like our float, because we saw a hot dog stand and we told people like, hey, go get us some hot dogs. Uh, and some beers and literally like people like cleared away for like some of our O-linemen to go. And one of the, the younger O-linemen went and grabbed like 12, 15 hot dogs from this hot dog <laughs> cart, you know, probably gave them, you know, gave them lots of money and came back with like some beers too. And it was like, this is fantastic. We it just might as well been gold. Abs oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you know, you're getting super drunk and you need a hot dog to kind of fill the system. Absolutely. I would have given, you know, you know, my birthright or something like that for it <laughs> at that point. Have you been to Mardi Gras? And if so, can you compare the two? No, I, I don't. I don't. I have not been to Mardi Gras, uh, but I don't think there's a comparison. Uh, we, you know, winning our first Super Bowl, um, you know, they let us go on the Mardi Gras floats, the official Mardi Gras floats. That's what we used. And that's a note like that's never happened because those things are, are under lock and key and they want to pr provide them on the day they do their floats. And so we got to go on the official Mardi Gras floats and that was huge. And that was big. So I imagine if I went now, It'd be like it'd be like when we went to the White House. Like I got to be in the White House that next August and hang out. Obama was the president and got to go in. And then the next year we went to DC on a trip with like family. 
and they wouldn't let me even close to the White House. So I imagine it'd be the same thing with Mardi Gras, where it'd be like, eh, this is not as fun as it was when I was on this on the float. Do you get back down to New Orleans much now? The only time I've been back was for a 10-year reunion in December of 19, and um, that was fun. That was, it was a great city, and uh, they welcomed us back like heroes. And I think it was the only time where the, the quarterback, your GM, and your head coach are still there 10 years later. Mickey Loomis, Sean Payton, Drew Brees. Yeah. So they really, they really rolled the red carpet for us. It was really, really, really cool. Post-career, what, what's kind of keeping you busy? What have you been up to? So I took about four years off just to kind of let my mind sort of just kind of readapt to the real world. I didn't jump into anything. I just kind of want to figure out what I did. I, I finished my degree. I had the coolest get out of test story was, uh, <laughs> uh, I like I said, I wasn't used to you know, being in the There's no more bribing in this one, is there? No, there's no bribing. <laughs> no, <right? laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know you're going to be disappointed if to bribe my professor. <laughs> but so I, I enrolled in college classes for the spring and not thinking about playoffs because like I said, I didn't know what that was. So we had a test the Super Bowl week. So it was a week I was going to be in Miami and I emailed my professor and I was like, hey, and he was like, no exception. You have to take your test. I'll give you a week. You have to take it then. And I emailed my professor. I'm like, hey, I have a, a work thing. I have travel for work. Can I do this test next week? And he was like, absolutely not. Like, what are you doing that, you know, you can't take this test? And I was like, well, I played for the Saints and we're in the Super Bowl. And he was like, dear thing. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was really cool. So uh, finished my degree from K-State. Kudos to you, man. Yeah, thank you. I had to. I think it looks good for uh, recruiting uh, when they say players come back, finish a degree. Plus, I told my mom and my aunt I'd finish my degree. Uh, had two kids. And then, you know, I wanted to open a restaurant. So I got in the food business, started selling food for Cisco Foods. Um, realized that that's a tough industry. Mm. And so, and then I got into medical device sales about into my fourth year of working. And I've been doing that for about past three, four years. Where do you currently keep your championship ring? I know you mentioned it and you say you don't wear it too much, but where does it, where does it hang out? And do you put it on? When does it come on your finger? It never gets put on my finger and it's mm. on, it's in a shelf on my, 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 my bookcase and like a, just a box. Like it's not even like on display. Basically w- when I wear the ring in public, it's pretty much saying, come speak to me, ask me questions about this. So I'll wear it to like charity events. Like if we have a K-State football games and I'm with buddies and like, or I sit in athletic director suite at K-State games, like I'll wear it to show his guests. And, I, and pretty much I wear it, I take it off and say, here you go. You guys can look with it. Like, don't you care if we lose it? I go, it's got my name on it. Like, I don't know. I don't care. Yeah, you'll, f- you'll find it on eBay, but it's exactly. got your name on it. So exactly. there's not much they can do with it. <laughs> I might have to rebuy it, right? Exactly. No. So yeah, so I just keep it there. Um, but it was cool. And I think that that feeling ages like a, like a nice, uh, like a California Cabernet. Every year it gets, I get further away from it, the more unbelievable it feels. And even I'll watch the replays, I'll be like, how the hell did we win this game? Just unreal. Do your kids believe it or are your kids kind of like, okay, dad, you played football. We get it. I think my son is 10 and he finally kind of grasped that I played in the NFL. We've gotten some arguments where I've coached him on flag football. And of course, I don't know anything, right? <laughs> of course. Uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's, what, that, that's what he does. He doesn't believe it. Well, listen, Nick, thanks a ton for taking some time out of your day to speak to us and uh, kind of reliving those glory days. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed this. Like I said, I think this is such a, a cool concept to kind of get that that person who kind of saw everything, right? Get their perspective. So I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to I One Two. This podcast is produced by Ed Miller and me, Max Morgan of Malik's Media. 
I Want Two is available wherever podcasts are found. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on Instagram at I Want Two Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>